sports. Specifically, their passion for baseball burns, burns incredibly bright. My junior in high school, we had a playoff game in a town that was notorious for uh, its raucous approach to baseball and cheering on even high school teams. And, and I remember when we showed up at the stadium, there were, uh, or the, the stands were full of people. They had lined chairs up and down both foul poles. They even allowed fans to sit on top of our dugout for this game. And people were screaming. They were hollering. They were going nuts. Uh, People had tailgated for a couple of hours prior to the start of that game. Now, I knew you tailgated in college, and I knew you tailgated in professional sports. But to do it in high school is a whole nother level of strange. And so we showed up, and people were uh, trying their best to knock us off rhythm. Uh, They tried to intimidate us. They tried to uh, shake us up by the things they would say to us, about us, the way that they would root so loudly for their team. And, And it got to a point where players on my team kind of reached their breaking point. And at one point in time, our center fielder, who had been warming up in between innings, and he was tossing the ball that he was using in so that the real inning could start, he just had it. And so rather than just tossing the ball in like he normally did, he launched it and just drilled one of their fans right in the chest sitting on this dugout. Now, when that happened, everyone who saw it and were aware of what happened just went crazy. I thought they were going to storm the field right then and there and just wipe us out, which they could have easily done. And my coach, he kind of got worked up in that moment, and he called all of us to him. He called a timeout, pulled us all close to him on the field, and he said, hey, guys, cut it out. They may do that here, but you guys are not from here. And he gave us that sober reminder that we were not from there. You know, one of the things that we need often as we follow Jesus through the world that is, is just to keep in mind that we play an away game, that we are in foreign territory, that the world as it is right now is not our home, that you and I belong to another world. And that's a great and glorious truth to keep in mind. That is one that can hold us together when Chaos seems to be surrounding us for a variety, a variety of reasons. As we walk through the world that is and route to the world that is to come, it is possible that you and I may hear more boos than cheers from the crowd. But what we do in that moment is we fix the eyes of our faith upon Jesus. We look to him reminding ourselves over and over and over again that here we have no lasting city. We look for the city that is to come. We are living for the world that will endure forever. And so we set our face like flint. We resolve to move in that direction. Now, 1 Peter was written in large part to remind Christians of that reality. It's as though Peter has sent this letter into Asia Minor that is bouncing from church to church, congregations of Christians who were rallying around the gospel, and they were reading this as though Peter was pulling them into a huddle and saying, hey guys, you are not from here. You belong to a better world. And he encourages us time and time again in this letter to live in light of that reality, to align our lives up with that which is true about us and that which will be true in the future. 
This is how Peter began the letter. He opened the letter referring to our exilic identity. That's why we've titled this series, this journey through 1 Peter is called Strangers and Exiles. We are sinners of a different sort. We don't belong here. We belong somewhere else. Now, that phrase, sinners of a different sort, is an important phrase. Because we must keep in mind that even though we are following Jesus right now, we are still sinners, right? There are moments in our lives where we want to grab the ball and chunk it into the stands. There are moments in our lives where we, want to, where we often reflect back to the world what the world is already like. And the reason that is, is because although we are following Jesus, we are still sinners, but we keep in mind that we are sinners of a different sort. We are people who are relying not upon our performance to make us right with our God. We are not reliant upon the works that we do in this world to make this world eternal. No, we are people who've been rescued and redeemed by the grace of God. Our God who sent his son Jesus to live a life of perfect obedience, to die on a cross in our place so that our sins can be forgiven. Our God who raised Jesus from the dead, declaring that he is Lord and that he is king. And so, yes, we are sinners as we journey through this world, but we are sinners of a different sort. We are fighting against those things within us that swell up at times that cause us to want to throw a ball into the stands and to think and to act in ways that is less than what God has called us to as followers of Jesus, living by faith according to God's grace. Now, there's a few dynamics in this text that I want to call your this attention to because this passage is in many ways Peter saying to Christians, hey, guys, cut it out. They may do that sort of thing here, but you are not from here. And he talks about the way in which Christians should go about their days, how we should spend our time in this world, living not according to the phrase he uses, human desires, but living according to God's will, doing the things that God would want us to do, doing the things that would honor Jesus and glorify Jesus and would ultimately help those around us best. As we do God's will, we learn how to love God and to love people. We discover what it looks like to actually love our neighbors as ourselves. And so this passage is Peter's way of saying, hey, guys, cut it out. They may do those types of things here, but, but you belong somewhere else. There are three things I want you to think about in the time that we have remaining. I want you to think about a decisive death that Peter calls our attention to. I want you to think about a different kind of life that you and I live as we follow Jesus together. And then I want us to think about a divine verdict that has been rendered and will be rendered in the future. So let's think first about a decisive death. You know, Peter reminds us at the very beginning of this passage, once again, of Jesus' suffering. You can't get very far in Peter's letter without thinking about the suffering and death of Jesus because he's constantly reminding us of it. He's just littered references to the suffering and death of Jesus all throughout his work. And you come to the beginning of verse 1 and we're reminded of it again. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh. You see, the suffering and death of Jesus is central to the Christian faith. It is central to how we understand who God is and how we understand who we are as those who've been created in his image, in his image, but as those who are marred and distorted by the reality 
of sin, the suffering and death of Jesus speaks volumes about what is ultimately real and what is ultimately true about who God is and about who you and I are. Now you know that when God took on flesh and he lived in this world, his primary purpose for sending Jesus into the world and Jesus' primary purpose for living his life in this world was to die. This was a decision that the Godhead made before he even created the earth. Peter reminds us of that in chapter 1, verse 20, that from before the foundation of the world, God had decided that Jesus would would suffer and that Jesus would die. And so when Jesus showed up in the world, he lived in light of that reality. And every decision he made and every moment of every day was made in cooperation with that dynamic. That Jesus lived his life constantly saying to God, you know, not my will be done, but your will be done. We know this in John 6, 38. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now this understanding that Jesus had come to do his father's will, that was challenged at the very beginning of his ministry when when Jesus started going public. One of the first things he did was he went out into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days. He just communed with the Father, hung out with the Father, talked to God, that God talked to him. But towards the end of that time, we're told that the tempter, Satan, approached Jesus in the wilderness and he began to challenge his commitment to the will of his Father. And he tempted him in three ways. One way, he tempted Jesus to fend for himself. He said, Jesus, if you're hungry, won't you take this stone and turn it into bread? This familiar temptation to take care of yourself. This is one that all of us face, right? We, we live our lives feeling as though we must fend for ourselves and take care of ourselves. And when we are unable to do that, we become anxious, we become worried, we become fretful. But remember what Jesus said to the Satan in that moment. He said, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He told the liar in that moment, look, I don't have to fend for myself. My father's going to take care of me. And when you and I commit not to live according to human desires, but according to the will of God, that's where we're resting. We're resting in the fact that our father is going to take care of us so we don't have to live our lives fretting over whether or not we have enough control or whether or not we have the power needed to take care of ourselves as we journey through this life. Second temptation that Jesus faced, and that wasn't so much to fend for himself. The second temptation was to exalt himself. Remember, uh, the serpent or the Satan led him to the top, to the pinnacle of Uh, a precipice and he told Jesus look if you really are the son of God why don't you jump off this cliff and you can command the angels they will swoop in and save you and you can exalt yourself in that way you can show yourself strong in that moment and Jesus responded he said no man shall not put God to the test he's saying we don't put God in those precarious positions where we are testing him by the decisions that we are making and the things that we are doing and And so once again, he refused to exalt himself. He's not succumbing to the temptation, saying, no, I'm here to do the will of my father. And the will of my father isn't to test him. The will of my father isn't to try him by doing something silly, like jumping off a cliff to prove myself to you or to anyone else. This is one of the most liberating facts about what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who no longer feels the pressure to have to prove themselves in this life. When you commit to doing the will of God and not living according to your own desires, suddenly you are signing up to the kind of life, you know, I, 
all of a sudden I don't have to prove myself to mom. I don't have to prove myself to dad. I don't have to prove myself to my friends or to my coworkers or to my bosses. No, I I know who my God is. I know where my future is heading and I'm gonna live my life in that freedom. This was Jesus' response in that moment. Now I'm not gonna test God because I don't have to prove myself to you or to anyone else. And so he resisted doing the will of his father. But then the third temptation he faced in that moment was the temptation, sorry, the second one was to prove himself. The third one was to exalt himself. And this is where the serpent or Satan asked him. He said, look, he took him to a high point and he showed him as far as the eye could see all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, look, if you just bow to me and worship me, I will give you all of this. And in that moment, Satan was tempting Jesus to exalt himself, to claim his kingdom apart from the cross. But Jesus did what we needed him to do in that moment. He refused to to usurp the Father's will, seizing these kingdoms for himself. Instead, he said no. And he flicked Satan away in that moment. Now, had Jesus given in to that temptation or to any of the other temptations, you realize he would have only served himself. He wouldn't have served anyone. He would have only served himself. And when it comes to doing the will of God, that's really where the, the money is. That's where the heart of the matter is. God's will is about serving others. God's will is about doing what's best for those around us. God's will isn't self-centered. It isn't self-focused. It isn't self-absorbed. And so Jesus refused in the wilderness to live for himself, choosing rather to do the will of his father and And he would do this all the days of his life so that when you get to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we're told that when the days were coming to a close for Jesus to be taken up, that's a reference to his crucifixion, he determined, he resolved to journey to Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I know suffering awaits me there, but I'm going anyways. And this is a remarkable thing about Jesus' commitment. Jesus, in the face of suffering, decided to serve you and me rather than to sin by avoiding suffering or avoiding the cross. And then you know what went down after he arrived in Jerusalem. There came a moment where he went into a garden the night before he is arrested and betrayed and taken to trial and soon to be crucified. He went into a garden and there he began to wrestle with the will of the Father. He began to sweat drops of blood because he was human And he knew that suffering would be hard. He knew that suffering wasn't something that we should get excited about and and applaud when we have to suffer. And so Jesus is in the garden and he's weeping, sweating drops of blood under so much strain and so much stress. And so he prayed with the father three times, Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. But God's will for his son in that moment wasn't to allow the cup to pass. His will for his son in that moment was for Jesus to go to the cross where he would give up his life for sinners and for sufferers like you and me. And so at the end of the night, Jesus would resolve, not my will, but your will be done. Even though God's will would run through suffering and not around it, Jesus submitted to it. Now, that's what Jesus did, right? But then notice what Peter's writing in this passage. He says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, and then he goes on, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Arm yourself with the same mentality. The same mentality that says, I'm gonna live my life not saying my will be done, but thy will be done. And if thy will involves suffering, I'm not going to pull back. I'm not gonna run around. I'm not gonna send my way through that moment. No, I'm going to serve through that moment. 
And I'm going to submit my life to doing the will of God. This, is, this phrase, arm yourself, is a military phrase. It's the image of a soldier getting ready for battle. And, and as Peter has mentioned multiple times in this letter, that this battle that we're facing, it's, it's a mental dynamic. A lot of it starts in the mind. This is why he started the letter, be sober-minded. And he's put so much emphasis on how Christianity is a thinking faith. That living by faith doesn't mean you check your head at the door. It means you think the gospel through and you consider deeply the reality of what God has done for you through Christ and you live in light of that. So he says, arm yourself with the same understanding. Think the gospel through. Be sober-minded. Make a decision. He's encouraging Christians to live their lives decisively. And he would, Jesus would say this to Peter in Luke chapter 9. If anyone would come after me, let him or her deny himself or herself and take up their crosses and follow me. That's the cost of discipleship. That's the call to become a Christian. Like we don't walk into relationship with Jesus haphazardly or half-heartedly or without thinking things through. No, we count the cost of discipleship. We consider what it means to say, not my will, but thy will be done, and we respond to that. And so there is a decisive death that every person must experience if they're going to walk with Jesus through this life. There's an initial decision where I say, okay, ultimately, not my will, but thy will be done. But then there's lots of many decisions that we make every day of our lives where we are taking up our crosses daily. We're denying ourselves regularly, saying, okay, I'm not going to live according to human passions that tempt me towards self-exaltation or self-justification or fending for myself in any kind of way. I'm not going to live in that direction. I'm going to live according to God's will. And God's will declares that he's going to take care of me. God's will declares that I don't have to prove myself to him because Jesus has done everything necessary for me. And God's will declares that we don't have to exalt ourselves as we journey through this life because there's coming a day, and Peter's going to champion this in the next couple of weeks, there's coming a day where God is going to exalt each and every one of us in Christ. And so we commit to doing the will of God, living in light of that, saying, not my will, but thy will be done. That's a decisive death. When you become a Christian, you're choosing to die to yourself. As you live the Christian life, you're choosing daily to die to yourself, saying, I'm not going to live according to human desires, but according to the will of God. And so in those moments, we take up our crosses and we live a different kind of life. A different kind of life that says to sin, okay, it's, enough is enough. I'm done with sin. I'm done with these habits. I'm done with these rituals. I'm done with these routines that, that cause me to experience less and less of the joy of the journey with Jesus and find myself dissatisfied more and more and more. No, there comes a point where our decisive death leads to a different kind of life. A life where we're saying enough is enough. Look at verse 3. Peter goes on, for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles, now that's a reference to those who are non-Christians. He's saying you've spent enough time living your life without faith in Jesus. And when you don't have faith in Jesus, these are the types of things that are normal for you, and he lists out some things. He says, for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, lawless idolatry. 
He's saying you've spent enough time doing that. Now engage in the new life that you have in Christ that says to sin, enough is enough. I'm done with that. And we want to be done with sin. We want to say to sin, enough is enough because of what sin does to us. C.S. Lewis describes this dynamic beautifully when he talks about what he has to do to kind of get his mind thinking well about how heinous and how ugly sin is in the human heart. This is what he said. He said, indeed, the only way in which I can make real to myself what theology teaches about the heinousness of sin is to remember that every sin is the distortion of an energy breathed into me. An energy which, if not thus distorted, would have blossomed into one of those holy acts whereof God did it and I did it are both true descriptions. He said, instead, we poison the wine as he decants it into us. Murder a melody he would play with us as the instrument. We caricature the self-portrait he would paint. Hence, all sin, whatever else it is, all sin is sacrilege. Now, this is someone who's thinking things through. This is someone who's arming themselves with the same understanding of Jesus. Jesus would rather die on the cross than sin against his heavenly father. And the reason he would rather die on the cross instead of sinning against his heavenly father is because he knows how destructive sin is, how sacrilegious sin can be, the small ones and the big ones, the sins in our head and the sins that show up in our lives. Another way of thinking about the heinousness of sin and why we want to say enough is enough, we want to say enough is enough because of what sin does to us and And a way to think about that is that sin has a dehumanizing effect. Sin dehumanizes people. Here's what I mean by that. When you look at the list that Peter's pulling out here, if you think deeply upon all of these descriptions, unrestrained behavior, that is to live without self-control, lacking it completely, unrestrained. Then he says evil desires. Now, evil desires there... uh, a literal translation of the word that's translated evil desires is it's kind of epic desires. These are uh, desires that may have started good, but they've grown so big in our lives, they're now defining us. And they are determining what we think life should be about. So, for example, you have, may have a desire for sex. Sex is good. It's a gift from God for a man and a woman to enjoy in the context of marriage and in light of that covenant security where vulnerability can be exercised and and we can give ourselves completely to each other in that way, it's a good thing. But what happens when it becomes an evil desire is when our desire for sex grows too large and it begins to dominate us so that we define ourselves by our sexuality. We define ourselves by our sexual practices. We define ourselves by those types of things. That, that's an evil desire. It is a desire that may be a good desire, but if it's growing too large, so it's now an epic desire, it's determining your life story, that's when it becomes an evil desire. But then he goes on. He refers to drunkenness, and he, which you might broaden the application there and refer to any form of self-medicating addiction. When we try to self-medicate and our efforts to self-medicate when we're dealing with a pandemic and we're dealing with social isolation and we're dealing with all these dynamics, when those efforts to self-medicate soon become addictive and we find ourselves becoming someone we were not originally created and much less redeemed to become. 
It's been said when you look at statistics today that the number of alcoholics in our society has doubled since the pandemic started. There's a lot of self-medication going on where they're taking perhaps what started out as a good desire, growing into an epic desire so that now it's drunkenness and a lack of sobriety is taking over and defining many people's lives. Then he goes on and he talks about orgies, which is a word that's, you know, don't Google it if you don't know what that means, right? You might get something you don't want. So you have this dynamic, then carousing, which is very closely related to that one, this social exchange, this social experience of sin, where people are rallying around sin together, carousing, orgies, drunkenness, all those are kind of tied to these social dynamics that were quite familiar to Peter's original readers in the first century. And if we're paying attention, they should be familiar to us as well when we look at the world around us. But then he wraps up lawless idolatry, this indulgent self-worship saying anything goes. Now, think about this list. It starts with unrestrained, unrestrained behavior, and then it just cascades down. And what he's describing there is more animalistic than it is human. To lack self-control and to be governed by desires or passions other than the will of God and other than the spirit of God and other than faith in the gospel of God, understand that that type of living is animalistic. It is not human. This is why we would say sin is dehumanizing. Sin, it is often said, if I'm sinning, it's just because I'm human. Understand that when we are sinning, we are being less than human. We are not living in light of the fact that we were created in the image of God. We're not living in light of the fact that the that God took on flesh and the full display of God's image in the person of Jesus came to rescue us from dehumanizing behavior. He came to restore us from imitating animals so that we can start imitating our maker, our God, the one that we were in whose image we were created. And so when we talk about a different kind of life, we're talking about giving ourselves to that which is human. We're talking about fighting against that which is dehumanizing. Anything that makes us more like an animal and less like our creator, that's what Peter's getting after here. So we talk about this different kind of life. And he's saying we need to be done with sin because of what sin does to us. It makes us less than human. But there's more, right? We don't just want to say enough is enough to sin because of what it does to us. We want to say enough is enough to sin because of what it did to Jesus. Do you realize that when Jesus took our place on the cross, he was treated like an animal? He was treated like the sacrificial lamb, crucified on the cross the way lambs had been slaughtered in the temple for hundreds and hundreds of years prior to that moment. Jesus went to the cross and there he was treated like an animal. Why? Because sin dehumanizes us. And when Jesus took our place, he stepped onto the cross where he was ultimately dehumanized. He was torn down. He was broken. He was battered. He was bloodied. He was crucified. And so the reason we want to say enough is enough with sin, yes, it dehumanizes us. But more importantly, we want to say enough is enough with sin because of what it did to Jesus. And we don't want to harbor anything in our lives that rendered the death of Jesus necessary. 
If you're wondering, well, is this holy or unholy? Is this right or unright? Can I, get a, can I do this? How far can I go in this direction? A better way to think about it is, does this attitude or does this action, did this attitude or did this action render the death of Jesus necessary? And if it is something that rendered his death necessary, let's be done with it. Let's say enough is enough. Let's resist that temptation. Let's call sin, sin, and flee from it. So you have a decisive death through the crucifixion of Jesus that we follow in suit with as Christians. And then you have a different kind of life that says, I'm going to be done with sin because of what it does to me. And I'm going to be done with sin because of what it did to Jesus. It dehumanized him on the cross. Now, one of the things that Peter points out in verse 4, he says, now, if you start to live like this and you begin to say enough is enough, he warns in verse 4, things may get rough. He says, things may get rough for you. He says in verse 4, they, that is, those you used to run with, those that you used to fellowship with, those that you used to share life with, he says, now, they're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. They're surprised by your new life. They're surprised that you're not going where they're going and thinking like they're thinking and doing the things that they are doing. And so he's reminding us here that when we follow Jesus, we step into a strange way of living. And, and so we begin to think about this because there are certain types of behavior and lifestyles that society says is normal. Society says it is normal to get drunk when you're depressed. Society says it is normal to sleep around when you're feeling that desire. Society says it is normal to engage in materialistic pursuits. Society says it is normal to engage in tribalism and to carve out different groups that believe they are inherently superior to other groups and they act like it. Society says things like ghosting is normal. We just pull away from our commitments without any type of conversation or any type of loyalty or any type of truth to the word that we have given. Society says it's normal to live out a survival of the fittest mentality. These normal ways of doing things, suddenly you become, you start following Jesus. You start saying, not my will, but your will being done. Enough is enough with sin. And suddenly you're no longer engaged in what society considers normal. You're now living a life that they consider strange. Now, what does society think is strange? Well, they think sobriety is strange, right? They think sexual purity is strange. They think fidelity to your spouse is strange. They think not cutting corners to get ahead in work is strange. They think loyalty is strange. They think commitment is strange. You're now living a strange kind of life because you're saying not my will but thy will be done and enough is enough with that which rendered the death of Jesus necessary. So there's a strangeness there but then he goes on. They may slander you. They may mock you, they may ridicule you. And he begins to talk about the social pressure Christians inevitably will face in this life. When I was in college, my life began to change. I was playing baseball at the time. And when my life started to change around my sophomore, towards my sophomore and junior years, uh, I started refraining from certain settings that I used to go to and I used to partake in along with the baseball team. And, and guys started to take notice that I was saying no to their invitations to go get drunk. And I was saying no to their invitations to go to the strip club. I was saying no to these types of invitations. And they couldn't reconcile that. They thought it was so strange. And there was two guys in particular on my team that just started bad-mouthing me behind my back. 
And I caught wind that these two guys, which happened to be one pitcher and one catcher, that they kind of had it out for me. They didn't like my presence on the team because just by virtue of not partaking in the things that they were partaking in, they interpreted that as an implicit judgment on them. And so they got angry. They got mad. They began to slander me in different ways. But then when we started to do scrimmages, I was warned by a buddy of mine, hey, when you bat against so-and-so, he's going to come at you. And sure enough, there was a series of scrimmages that we had over several weeks where this same pitcher threw at my head every time I got in the box. And I couldn't figure out why is he so, why are they so mad that I'm not, that I'm not partaking in these types of things? I'm not rallying around sin with them. And, and then it hit me, well, it's not necessarily because I'm thumping my Bible every time I open my mouth. It's not because I'm thumping my Bible every time I interact with them now. It's it's because in my refrain, in my restraint, they hear an implied judgment. And so they got angry and they began to slander and they began to mistreat me. Now, I, fe- I felt in that moment alienation like I'd never felt before. I was always really good friends with my teammates. I loved baseball because of the camaraderie I had with playing that game alongside others. And now I'm in a moment where I'm kind of being pushed out and and I'm not a part of the team in certain kinds of ways, and I'm wondering, well, what do I do now? And, and about that time, as I was one night just really lonely, and I was praying, I was asking God for help, I heard a knock on my door, and I opened it up, and there was a guy named Kenny on the other side. And Kenny wasn't, he used to play baseball, but he didn't any longer, and, and he came in to check on me, and we began to have a conversation, and Turned out Kenny's life, he had put his faith in Jesus and his life was changing and my life was changing. And so we connected in that moment and, and all of a sudden I found a friend and he introduced me to other folks who were following Jesus and they pulled me into a, a, new time, a new kind of community. And as I began to shift in that direction, I discovered what the church is supposed to be for those who are feeling alienated. I discovered what the church is supposed to be for those who are being pushed to the fringes and being alienated because they don't rally around sin with others. Instead, they're now wanting to rally around Jesus with others. And so you find the church in that moment, the church's role to be an alternate society for the Christian. The church's role to be a gospel colony in a strange land. The church's role in providing a social context for you and for me to gather and to support each other and to have kinship with one another, to encourage and to love one another, saying, look, I'm not on that team anymore. I'm on a new team. And this is an exclusive team like baseball could be. This is a team that includes sinners like me. And we open our doors wide to anyone and everyone to come and to partake in the gospel and to rally around Jesus with us. And you find the church in that moment to being what the church is supposed to be, an alternate society, a new group for folks to run with and to rally around Jesus together. And that brings us to the next dynamic in verse five. You have a decisive death, a different life, and then a divine verdict. Look at verse five. Peter reminds his readers, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. So Peter here is encouraging them with a divine verdict that is going to come to the Christian one day. Now, a major source of anxiety for Christians in the first century was when other Christians died. See, Christians understood that for the wages of sin is death. And so when they would see their loved ones die, they they were rocked by that. 
They would think, well, didn't Jesus give us eternal life? Why are we still dying? And, and then everybody outside the church began to poke fun at the church for the very same reason. Ha, you trusted in Jesus. He died. You're dying. Everything that you're believing in is a sham. And, and so the church was slandered like Jesus. Essentially, when Jesus was on the cross and he heard, if you are the Christ, come down from the cross, the ch- people would say to the church, if you are, if you have eternal life, why are you still dying? And here Peter is kind of clarifying for them, saying, look, remember, Jesus' jurisdiction is not limited to life in this world. It extends to death as well. And he says Jesus is there ready to judge the living and the dead. And those who have died in Christ are not lost. Those who have died in Christ are kept by Christ. And one day that's going to be made evident to everyone. John Calvin made this comment on this text, which I found helpful. He said, we see that death does not hinder Christ from being always our defender. That Jesus defends us in life and he will defend us in death. It is a remarkable consolation to the godly that death itself brings no loss to their salvation. Even if Christ does not appear as deliverer in this life, yet his redemption is not void or without effect For his power extends even to the dead. His power extends even to the dead. And as you and I live in light of that, we're living towards this moment where Jesus is going to see the life of faith that was led, the way that we spent our time in this world following Christ. And Jesus tells us there's coming a moment when we hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. And that verdict is given to us. And that verdict is heard by everyone else as well. That the time we had in this life wasn't wasted. The time we spent saying, not my will, but God's will being done, isn't wasted. The time we spend saying, enough is enough with sin, that time is not wasted. Because there's coming a day when Jesus the judge will declare us right and will respond to us, well done, good and faithful servant. I have in my hand a coin. It's not a very big coin. I tried to find a novelty coin that was much bigger that you might be able to see a little better, but this is the best I could come up with, a quarter. Now what this coin represents is time. Specifically, it's time that you've been given. And everyone has a coin, everyone has time in this life. We don't know how much time we have. Some may have more, some may have less than others. Now what's important about the time that we have is that we don't let other people spend it for us. At the time that we have, whether it be short or whether it be long, this is time that we ourselves should spend, but not necessarily let other people spend for us. But even more than that, this time is something that we shouldn't just try to spend in this world. The time is something that we should invest in this world. That we wouldn't just spend time, we would invest our time. And if you've made investments, you know that investments are future-oriented, right? You make an investment hoping for a return in the future. Well, as followers of Jesus, we invest our time by living for the future that is waiting us, that is awaiting us. And so we don't just waste our time and we don't just spend our time doing the things that we want to do, that we think we need to do in order to be happy. No, we invest our time. 
We say, not my will, but your will be done every moment of every day. We say, enough is enough with sin. Investing our time, knowing there's coming a day when Jesus is going to say to us, as he says to all of his disciples, well done, good and faithful servant. And so I want to encourage you to invest the time that you have in this life. Invest it in areas that focus on the will of God. Invest it in areas that contribute to human flourishing and not dehumanizing sin. Invest the time that you have in such a way knowing that one day Jesus will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter the joy of your master. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace? Give us grace not to waste our time in this life. Give us grace not to simply spend our time doing certain things, even good things, enjoyable things. God, would you give us grace to invest our time, to make the most of the days that we have in this world, whether they be many or they be few. Give us grace to invest. May we pour ourselves into your will May we contribute to human flourishing. May we live in such a way that, that recognizes your voice that will declare over us, well done, good and faithful servants. God, would you help us in that? By your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.